Well, welcome once again to St. Peter's Fireside Online. I'm Rob, I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to our online broadcast today. Whether you're tuning in on Sunday morning uh, and joining us on, at 10 a.m., or whether you're watching right now with a house church community, or even if you've just come across this on YouTube somehow by accident, we, the algorithm just showed you this, we want you to know that we are really glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, before I begin, let's pray together. Lord God, we come now to your word, to the Gospel of Luke. And we ask that you would come and you would grace us with your presence. May you give us eyes to see who you are. May you give us ears to hear you speak. May you come now and remove any distractions and any things that are going on around us that we might be attentive to you and to your presence with us. And in this time, may we be spurred on in love of you. May we love you all the more. And may we never be the same. In your precious name we pray. Amen. This past summer, I rediscovered the joy of reading. Now, I've always loved reading, but I recently finished a master's degree, and there's nothing quite like further education to rob you of the joy of reading. During the summer, though, I rediscovered what it was like to get lost in fiction, to get lost in a story, for my brain to imagine characters and a whole universe. And I rediscovered that joy of fiction. And I've also rediscovered the joy of reading other genres of books. Most recently, I've rediscovered the joy of reading biographies. These stories and accounts of people who have lived before us and who have walked the earth and have been remembered for how they live. One of the books I've been reading through is Jackie Pullinger's account of her work as a missionary in Hong Kong and how she ministered within the, the walled city and saw God work in powerful ways in the lives of prostitutes and drug addicts and gang leaders. And I've been inspired by her faith. Our world is full of accounts of people who have come before us, who have lived and left their mark on the world. And often their lives are recorded in books written records which stand as a testimony to these people who have come before us so that we might know who they were and how they lived. If you've been following along with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that we've recently started a new, really long series going through the Gospel of Luke. Now, just how long of a series is this? Well, this is week three, and we still haven't got past verse four in the first chapter. Although, don't worry, uh, next week we'll pick up the pace a little bit. The last two weeks, Alistair has told us about Luke and Theophilus. Luke, the author of this gospel, the bearer of light, who sought to recount the life and deeds of Jesus. And Theophilus, the lover of God, who commissioned Luke to write this gospel for him so that he could know how much God loves him. Today, we're still in the first four verses of Luke because we still have just a little bit more groundwork to cover before we can move on and dive into the rest of our series. And as we turn our attention to the Gospel of Luke today, I want us to consider a question. What is a gospel, and why can we trust it? What is a gospel, and why can we trust it? So I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to be using the NIV translation today, just because I think it helps translate and render this text a little bit better in the English, just to make it more user-friendly. Um, 
But join me as we read, beginning in verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Let's begin by considering the first part of our question. What is a gospel? I remember when I was little, hearing a, a rhyme. Uh, it was kind of prayer you would say before you went to bed. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bless this bed that I lie on. Now, I don't remember how the rest of it goes. Uh, there's something about one at each corner of the bed or something. Clearly, it didn't make much of an impression upon me. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the names of the four Gospels we have in the New Testament. The Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Mark. According to Luke. According to John. Matthew begins, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. John starts by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Luke, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. These four books, these gospels, they're the accounts of Jesus, what he did, what he said, who he was, and how he lived. They're the written accounts of the good news of how Jesus came to be with us. If we want to learn about Jesus, who he was and what he did, these are the books we go to. Just as we might pick up a biography to read and learn about the people who have lived before us, we pick up a gospel to learn about Jesus. Now, if I pick up a biography, let's say about Preston, I'd learn about when he was born and how he grew up, the influences his parents and his family played on his life, the friends he had growing up and the mischief and trouble they got up to. I'd learn about how this modern Wisconsin man who hails from North Carolina met his wife. I'd learn about their kids and how they ended up in Vancouver. When we pick up a biography, we expect to learn certain things about a person. We have an idea of the genre of a biography. They conform to certain stylistic patterns and provide certain types of information. I'd expect to learn about Preston's extensive collection of pogs. But when we pick up a gospel, they don't really fit the idea we have of a modern biography, do they? Matthew comes closest, perhaps, since it begins by giving us a genealogy. But Mark starts by quoting a prophet. Luke begins with this almost investigative reporter summary survey for the person he's writing to. And then John's just on another level with this sort of cosmic overture. And then when we read through the Gospels, I mean, we get some details about Jesus' birth and his family. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and his parents are Mary and Joseph. There was some stuff about angels singing, and then they had to flee to Egypt. There's a single report about a family road trip they went on to Jerusalem when Jesus was about 12. But all of a sudden, it seemed like they had lost Jesus. His parents didn't know where, they, where he went. And then they found him in the temple teaching all the Pharisees and all the scribes and leaders. We learned about his cousin John, who also was a preacher, and who hung out in the, in the desert eating locusts and honey. But there's a lot of details that the Gospels don't give us. We don't learn very much about Jesus' childhood. We don't learn about who he grew up with or the influences in his life. 
we don't know if he enjoyed going to see Cousin John, and whether he and John would hang out at one end of the dinner table eating locusts and honey, while everybody else would sit around the table eating a normal meal. We just don't know. And that's because the Gospels aren't trying to tell us about these things. They aren't a modern biography. Instead, they're trying to accomplish something else. I appreciate how Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart talk about the Gospels. They write, These books, which tell us virtually all we know about Jesus, are nonetheless not biographies, although they are partly biographical. Nor are they like the contemporary lives of great men, although they record the life of the greatest man of all time. They are, to use the phrase of the second century church father Justin Martyr, the memoirs of the apostles. The Gospels are the memoirs of the apostles. These memoirs of the apostles are the accounts we have from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about this person they encountered, this person they've met, this person who drastically changed the course of their lives. The word gospel literally means good news. There's something in these accounts that stands as good news. So the good news according to Matthew, the good news according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. And good news always has to do with something. There's an object or a subject that the news is about. And in this case, it's about Jesus. These are the accounts they've written about Jesus, who they consider to be the most important person to have ever lived. But this brings us to our second question. How can we trust this? It's all well and good to have these memoirs about Jesus, but can we trust what they say? Let's look again at how Luke describes his gospel. In verse 1 we read, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. This gospel is the good news, according to Luke, about the things that have been fulfilled among us. That is, these things about Jesus and what he's done, what Jesus has accomplished. Luke is recounting the living memory of what Jesus did. And he says he talked with eyewitnesses. It's like he heard the memoirs of the apostles from them firsthand. He may have sat down with Peter and with James and with John. But can we trust this account? Can we trust this memoir Luke's written about Jesus? And can we trust these eyewitnesses to truly tell us about Jesus? There's a New Testament scholar who, who doesn't trust these eyewitnesses. His name is Bart Ehrman, and he's a professor at UNC Chapel Hill. He calls himself an agnostic, and he's written several books explaining some of his ideas about why he doesn't believe and trust the Bible. And one of the books he's written attempts to explore and probe the validity of eyewitness testimony, specifically in the Gospels. And he draws upon modern research into how memory works, and concludes that the Gospels aren't as historically reliable as Christians would like to believe. But what's interesting is that he finds memory a really compelling thing. In fact, he writes, The Gospels are more than historical sources. They are deeply rooted and profound memories of a man. Memories that ended up transforming the entire world. And as he himself has engaged with the Bible, and as he's wrestled with who Jesus is as he's presented in the Gospels, he's even written and said, Deep down... I am profoundly stirred by the story of God coming into the world for the salvation of sinners. 
Even though Bart Ehrman doesn't believe in the full historical reliability of the Gospels, nonetheless, he recognizes that there's something about these books, there's something about the Gospels, that is profoundly important. And even as an agnostic secular scholar, he thinks it's worth our time to engage and learn about how Jesus is presented in the Gospels. And while Bart Ehrman doesn't trust the eyewitnesses in the Bible, he's not the final voice on the matter. There's actually plenty of scholarship out there about why we can trust the testimony of these eyewitnesses. And there's one scholar in particular named Richard Bockham who's produced an extensive, in-depth study on the topic of eyewitness testimony in the Bible. And I and, and many other people have found his arguments incredibly compelling. Because even today, we can't write off eyewitness testimony. It carries a lot of weight in our day-to-day -day life. Think about it. Most of our news is derived from reports of eyewitness accounts. News reporters will seek out people who saw what happened. And when we hear about something that's happened, we look for sources. So when a famous band comes through for a concert and we can't go, or there's a game, a match for our favorite sports team and we can't watch the match, it's then that we seek out people who have seen it for themselves and we ask them to tell us what happened. So if you want to know what happened at Katy Perry's last concert in Vancouver, you can talk with Alistair. But eyewitness testimony isn't always reliable. There have been a number of court cases that were decided upon eyewitness testimony that have since been overturned because of DNA evidence. So doesn't that cast a shadow upon the validity of eyewitness testimony in the Gospels? If we were receiving the accounts of maybe just one or two or just a handful of eyewitnesses, then, then maybe it would color it a little bit and maybe we should be a bit concerned. But the same shadow that gets cast upon the Gospels is the same shadow that gets cast upon news and upon history. The same shadow that's cast upon biographies and upon Alistair's account of what happened at Katy Perry's concert. And it's become popular to talk about fake news. And there are other stories in history that we really need to consider. But the way we discern the validity of news reports today and, and the way we discern what really happened during the concert is by attending to multiple sources. So you should ask Lloyd about the concert too. Because when we have multiple eyewitnesses attesting to the same story, we have greater confidence in what's been told. And so, especially when we're looking at eyewitness testimony from 2000 years ago, our question should be, how many sources did our gospel writers have? How many people did they talk with to learn about the things that Jesus did? And we get a window into just how many witnesses there were in one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one entirely born, he appeared also to me. So there were more than 500 people who saw Jesus after he resurrected, and many of them were still alive when the New Testament was being written. And if there were that many who could attest to seeing him after he resurrected, there were surely even more who could speak about this rabbi who had taught in Jerusalem. Jesus was a controversial figure. He flipped tables in the temple. 
He provoked the Pharisees, those leading teachers of his day. It captured the hearts and minds of people everywhere. 500 people could witness to seeing him alive after he went to the cross. But so many more people could attest to seeing these things he did and said before he ever went to the cross. We can trust the eyewitness testimony because there was so much of it available for the gospel writers to go to. Well, okay, so there are a lot of sources that are referred to in the Bible. But what if they just made it all up? The sources, the stories, what if they just made it all up? I don't know if you've ever seen the, the this, is, this Is Vancouver video, which we made when St. Pete's was started. Uh, but there's a woman in it who says that she thinks that the Bible is just an elaborate fairy tale. Now, the New Testament sets itself up as describing something that happened in history. And it's really interesting to compare the New Testament to other historical writings from antiquity. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus is one of our primary witnesses and sources for learning about the Greco-Persian War. And he wrote around the year 450 BC. But the earliest copies of his writings we have get dated to about 900 AD. And we only have eight copies of them. The Roman historian Tacitus lived in the time of the New Testament, and he wrote about the lives of several Roman emperors. But the earliest manuscripts we have from him are dated 1,000 years later, and we only have about 20 of them. Another Roman historian, uh, Titus Livius, who's more commonly known as Livy, he wrote the book on Roman history, which he wrote around the year 17 AD. But the earliest copies we have are dated to around 900 AD. So it's actually very common for the earliest copies of ancient manuscripts to be dated about 900 years after their original composition. And there's usually only a few of them. But what's remarkable is that when we look at the New Testament, that's just not the case at all. We've been able to find lots of ancient copies of the New Testament. And the copies we have get dated to about 300 years to, to even as close as 30 years after the original composition of these writings. And we don't just have a few of them, we have a lot of them. There's more than 5,000 Greek copies, over 10,000 Latin copies, and over 9,000 copies in other languages. In fact, the New Testament scholar Daniel Wallace has remarked that compared to the manuscripts available to classical Greek and Latin scholars, New Testament scholars, he says, face an embarrassment of riches. The historical reliability of the New Testament is unrivaled among ancient texts. Scholars say that the Bible, and especially the New Testament, is an historically reliable book. And when we turn to the Gospel of Luke, in particular, we find that Luke himself is an impressively reliable witness. He writes in verse 3, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke explains that he's done a careful investigation of everything he writes about in his gospel account. Now, it's likely that Luke himself never met Jesus in person, but he definitely met people who had met Jesus. In fact, the way Luke sets up his book, he describes it as though he's done an in-depth journalistic report. He's met with the people who were there, the people who saw Jesus in Jerusalem and walking around Palestine. He's read the reports. He's found the other accounts people have put together explaining who Jesus was. He's done the due diligence of researching and investigating what it was that happened, the things that were fulfilled among them. And here he is, issuing his final conclusive report. 
So what do we make of this report? I think this is where we might need to listen to history a little bit. The consensus among historians is that there was a man from Nazareth named Jesus. This person the Bible speaks about, historians say that he existed. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus, who did not follow Jesus, wrote around the year 94 AD. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon their loyalty to him. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and that he was alive. Accordingly, they believed that he was the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets had recounted wonders. If the stories about Jesus were complete fiction, Josephus was close enough to what happened to be able to debunk all of that. But what he tells us is that Jesus did exist, and many people followed him, and they believed that he resurrected, and that they believed he was the promised Messiah. So historically, this community existed. We can't just write it off as though everything was completely made up. Jesus and his followers aren't an elaborate fairy tale. He really existed, and people really followed him. And Jesus and his followers became a large enough community that even historians of the day had to acknowledge and account for who they were and what they believed. Now, all of this, the eyewitnesses, Luke's careful investigation, the historical reliability of the New Testament, it's pretty impressive. I mean, it's remarkable that there were so many people Luke could talk with. It's somewhat overwhelming how the New Testament's transmission and preservation throughout history compares with other ancient texts. And I find it encouraging to hear and learn about the trustworthiness of this gospel. But that's not the point. It's not the point. The evidence is amazing, but evidence can't replace faith. And for all of Luke's diligence in researching and investigating and writing this account, he knows that the evidence itself isn't the point. Luke writes, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke's written an orderly account. He's got a purpose in mind as he writes. And yes, his purpose is to provide a report of who Jesus is, to offer an account of this person who drastically changed Luke's own life and the lives of countless others. But Luke hasn't been diligent with his research just to write a biography. No, all the evidence, all the work he's done, and indeed all the evidence in support of the reliability of the New Testament, it serves a purpose. It leads us to a question. And the question is this, is Jesus trustworthy? Is Jesus trustworthy? That's the question Luke is asking us. That's the reason he wrote this book. So that we can learn about this person who changed everything. In studying the Gospel of Luke, we come face to face with who Jesus is and what he did. You see, all this evidence, it doesn't replace faith. What the evidence does is provide a reliable and trustworthy account of the person who changed the world. The evidence brings us to a point of decision. Is this Jesus who, who walked the earth and worked mighty deeds? Is this Jesus who, who died to take upon himself the weight of our sins? This Jesus who rose to life and ushered in the rule and reign of God 
and the restoration and reconciliation of all things. Is he trustworthy? That's the question Luke invites us to consider as we read his gospel. Luke wants us to know the history and to decide if Jesus really is the Savior and Lord who died and was raised. He doesn't want to rush us to make a decision. He wants us to make an informed decision. An informed decision which we make by coming on a journey, the journey of learning who Jesus was and what he's done. So friends, the invitation is this. Will you come and sit and read? Will you come and learn about the God who came to earth for you and for me? Will you come along with us as we learn together what Jesus has done?